Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you. Well, as Jamari said, I am Tiana Richards, Coordinator of Multicultural Student Affairs. So I would like to welcome everyone, everyone to today's event, Uncover the Watts Riot of 1965. As you may know, Dr. Armani Wazwaz has been a part of the Black History Committee for the past three and a half years. She finds it very important for all students to know African-American history and culture. She finds it very empowering for African-American students to take pride in their culture and to have a deeper knowledge of their history. She also finds the ability to write deeply empowering and very grateful that Moraine allows her to teach writing composition and research classes as well as creative nonfiction. Her areas of specialty are cultural studies and 19th and 20th century American literature in multi-ethnic contexts. She brings this background into her love of teaching of African-American, non-Western, and American literature. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Amani Wazwaz as she gives you this discussion today. Okay, right, thank you, thank you everybody. Welcome African-American Lit, welcome career development, and welcome to all the people who came here. And for today, let me begin, double check. Okay, so we're gonna be talking about covering, um, uncover, the Watts Riot of 1965. From August 11, 1965, until August 16, 1965, the Watts Riot erupted. Six days later, unfortunately, 34 people were killed. 4,000 arrests were made. A thousand buildings were damaged, many put on fire, there was a lot of looting, and there were $40 million in damages according to the 1965 way of living. So if we were to compare it now, the $40 million in damages would be a whole lot more. 34 deaths, 34 lives lost, and many people's lives were gone, never the same again. What in the world happened? What went on? This was one of the most dangerous riots of the civil rights movement era. What had happened? So what we're gonna be doing today is this. We're gonna look at the historical background and I am going to be stressing the human face tremendously here, the human face of the history and then move into looking at the Los Angeles portion of the history, because this is where the Watts riot took place. It took place in Los Angeles. I'm gonna look into the incident itself and then an analysis of what had happened. So the presentation today will be divided into three segments. Let's begin with the historical background. So, the Watts riot took place in the Watts region of Los Angeles in 1965. Why were African Americans present there? What was the larger historical context? The larger historical context actually began with mass migrations. And I would like to ask my students in the audience, those of you with an African American ethnic background, those of you with African-American ancestry, where did your grandparents or parents come from? 
Can I please have participation? Where did your parents or grandparents come from? Before they moved into Chicago, where were they? Anybody want to say? Yes. Alabama. Okay. Alabama. Mississippi, Alabama, Mississippi. Do you know? Louisiana. Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana. And so if you notice over here, there is tremendous mass migration from the south going to the north, which a lot of people know about, but also going to the west. And yes, people do know about it, but maybe there should be more. I want to ask you, do you have a number on how many people migrated from the south to the north and to the west, starting from 1915 and going on into the 1970s? Do you have a number? How many? How many migrated? Yes. Okay. Less than that, less than that, but you are right concerning the millions, six million. Six million people migrated starting from 1915 and they continued, they continued migrating. Now, so people of African American ancestry, of African heritage, their ancestors were forced out of Africa. Then they came to the South. So they developed roots in the South. They developed family and friendships in the South. Why in the world would six million people want to get out of the South? They didn't really want to, but why would they do that? Yes. You are right. The South had a lot of discriminatory laws against people of African descent. So discrimination. Let's please add to what the gentleman said. There was discrimination. What else was there going on in the South? Yes, Max. The job opportunities. The job opportunities. They wanted better livelihood for themselves and for their children and for their families. So discrimination. Job opportunities. Let's add on to what... Uh, Let's add on to these reasons. Why would they leave? Six million. That's a lot of people, a lot of families. Why would they leave besides discrimination, job opportunities? Anybody? Mike. I mean, I think you kind of already said it, but like there was a lot of like racism and stuff. Like there were groups that were like harassing them and trying to get them out and stuff. Okay harassment and there were groups there were very violent groups you are right mike so we will begin here in order to eventually get to our discussion of the watts riot let's give a brief background of what was happening with the first great migration which concentrated on african americans moving from the south to the northern region reasons why you already pointed out to it max number one jobs. African Americans were pretty much kept enslaved by the sharecropping system. 
They could work the land, but they were supposed to give a portion of what they produced to the landlord who kept them enslaved. They did not have enough money for their own livelihoods. When people started to pack up, when word got around that in the north there was a possibility for them to make more money, people in the south did not like that. Why? Because the source of their cheap labor was going away and they were very upset. A gentleman wrote in the south in the newspaper, why hunt for the cause? Why is it that in the South we're worried about finding the reason about why they're all going away? It's as plain as the noonday sun, he wrote. He doesn't want to leave. He, the African-American, doesn't want to leave. Of course, they develop their roots and their culture in the South. But he knows if he stays here, he will starve. They have nothing to eat, no clothes, and no shoes. Pick up, go ahead. Move someplace else, someplace that will give somebody respect and dignity. This was their dream. There was something else moving them forward. And that is what the gentleman in the back and Mike said, racism and violence. Okay. So racism and violence were pushing them away. Why do I have a tree up there? Mike, lynching. lynching. Okay, lynching. So approximately every four days, an African-American was lynched in the South. When you ask people who fled the South, why did you flee? They would say, I was scared. I was terrified. There was violence all over. Roughly every four days, an African-American was lynched. There was this African-American gentleman who was one day walking and he saw this tree, and when he walked closer, he saw that an African-American man had been lynched and was hanging from there. Took off, immediately took off, and never looked back again. They took off. They had dreams. They had hope that in the North, life would be so much better, that in the North, there would be no violence, there would be no lynching, there would be better job opportunities for themselves and for their children. Isabel Wilkerson is an amazing African-American author, and she interviewed many African-Americans who had fled the South. And in the end, she concentrated on three African-Americans so that they could tell their stories and she put it together in her book, The Warmth, uh, the Warmth of Other Sons. And she grew her inspiration from African-American writer Richard Wright. Why? Because Richard Wright and his family also fled. And they went to Chicago. And Richard Wright said the following, that he was taking his roots away from the South and putting them somewhere else in the hope that the warmth of another sun would give, would give him hope. This warmth would warm up his dreams and his, he and his dreams would develop. So this was the dream that they carried with them, whether they went to the north, whether they went to the west. These people who left the south, they tended to be 
educated. They tended to have very strong, stable family lives. And when they went up north, they wanted to find job opportunities for themselves to better their lives for themselves and for their children. Isabel Wilkerson particularly concentrates on one of these prominent African Americans by the name of Ida Mae Brandon Gladney. And she told her story to Isabel Wilkerson. Why did Ida Mae leave the South? Why did she leave her family? She took her children. She took her husband with her as well, too. Ida Mae told the author, Isabel Wilkerson, that one day when she was very young, these two white boys in the South, they went and they grabbed her and they dangled her by the feet upside down inside of a well. She was terrified and it stayed with her. And then when she got married, one day these men came and knocked on the door. They wanted her husband's cousin. They took him, they dragged him, and they beat him up. Why? Well, there were turkeys missing and they said that Ida May's husband's cousin had stolen the turkeys. He did not steal the turkeys, but they beat him up and they beat him up badly. And Ida May's husband nursed him back, but they said enough is enough. She herself was traumatized when she was a child. And then in front of their eyes, they saw that the cousin was beaten. They're like, okay, we're gonna need to flee. And so they fled and they worked hard. They worked really, really hard. Was life in the North easy? What do you say? It wasn't, it was not easy. It took them decades to finally buy a home. And when they bought a home, what did their white neighbors do? What did the white neighbors do when they finally bought a home? They fled. So the white neighbors up and fled their, neighbor, their neighborhood. And so here was Ida Mae, and she was trying, and her husband was trying. Her husband first worked as an iceman, and then he worked in the Campbell Soup Company. And she herself ended up being a nurse's aide. African Americans who left the South were constantly trying very hard. Life was never easy for them. Take the example of Dr. Ossian Sweet. He was a doctor and he went up north and he bought a home. 500 people gathered around his home and started throwing rocks at his house. They didn't want him there. Next year, for the 2020-2021 school year, the One Book, One College will be discussing the Book of Poems 1919. Chicago unfortunately faced race riots and 38 people were killed in these race riots. So if you're still at Moraine Valley, please be reading this book. We will cover the race riots that took place in 1919. So I covered the, great, the first great migration in general. So from the south, to the north. But then what more people should know about is the travel to the west. What happened 
Why did African Americans end up going to the West? We need to first take a look at the African American presence in the West. You have Governor Pio Pico, who was the governor from 1845 until 1846 in California. From his name, what is his ethnicity? Hispanic, exactly. He was Hispanic. He was Mexican, mixed in with African heritage. So what we have in the West in the 19th century is we do have people of African heritage background, and some of them are mixed in with the Mexican background. For a while, there was no discrimination. But then, with the onset of the gold rush in 1850, people of African descent started facing discrimination. So earlier, it's a mixed Mexican-African heritage. Not as much African-Americans. Isabel Wilkerson says this, when there were railroads and there was a train, African-Americans used it as a form of transportation to migrate and to go to another city, another place. So in 1880, the Santa Fe Railroad finished its construction. And so what you have is African-Americans started going into Los Angeles. Before 1865, they were still enslaved. They did not go to the West. 2,131 African-Americans were in Los Angeles. And then more by 1910, the, great, the first great migration, African-Americans went to the North. So there's no significant increase in the population in the West, in Los Angeles. But could you please make a note of this? There is the second great migration. 1940, there were uh, 63,700 people of African-American descent in Los Angeles. By 1965, the time of the Watts riot, look at how much it magnified. 350,000 people. There is a massive jump going on here from 1940 to 1965. So whereas before they fled to the north and they kept going to the north, now they started going west. How do you account for that? What are some of your guesses? Why? What happened? Why a move out to the north, to the west? A guess, a possibility. Why would they go? Yes, gentlemen. They got what? Okay, so maybe the West, maybe, maybe the West would have opportunities. So they're guided by the promise of the warmth of other sons as well, too. So it's constantly the dream, the American dream. Maybe pick up their roots, and maybe those roots will blossom someplace else. Okay, maybe opportunities, and you are so right. Okay, so 1940, this coincides with what was going on during that time? 1939, 1940, 1941, what was going on? Who said that? 
Okay, the same gentleman, yes, the Second World War. So what was happening then was the defense industry needed workers. They needed workers, and so did the automobile industry, and so did other industries. So what President Theodore Roosevelt did was he issued Executive Order 8802, and he said the, fo uh, the following. Um, Franklin Roosevelt, I mean. So, <laughs> and he said the following. He said, people will not be discriminated again. Franklin Roosevelt, okay. Um, people would not be discriminated against in the defense industry. If people are gonna come, be coming in, let them come in. No discrimination whatsoever. So people are like, okay, sure, let's join in. Let's go to uh, the industries. There are opportunities, just like the gentleman was saying in the back. There are, no oppor there are opportunities. Well, one gentleman who went up was the following. He was Dr. Robert Joseph Pershing Foster. And he had studied in Meharry Medical School, which is an HBCU. He was a great doctor. He was a surgeon. He was even uh, a captain in the army. Extremely intelligent. Very, very well educated. When he went to Austria and was a captain in Austria, he was very well respected. And many African-American soldiers experienced that in Europe. In Europe, the African-American soldier was deeply respected. And then when the African-American soldier went back to the South, how was the African-American soldier treated? How was he treated? Poorly. Very poorly, and they're like, wait a second, so I'm here fighting for my country, and I'm treated so well in Europe, and then I come back to what is supposed to be my own country, and I'm not treated very well. Keep in mind, intelligent, educated, he goes back to Louisiana, he's not given the chance to practice being a doctor. He's got all this potential. He's got all this knowledge. He's got all of this experience in him, and he's not permitted to practice his own trade, his own art. And so, yes, he too picks up, and he too says, I'm going to go and head out west. Maybe in the west I'll get the chance to be who I truly am, a doctor, a surgeon. And on the way heading out west, he was warned, don't go out west. You might be leaving Jim Crow in the South. Jim Crow, the set of laws that um, keep African-Americans segregated from other people. These are uh, strict laws. Somebody told him in the West, there's no Jim Crow. Instead, there's a Jim James Crow. It continues. The discrimination continues. The violence continues. So even on his way to the West, he faces discrimination. He reaches the West. Is he accepted? No, he's not accepted. So what he does is the following. He works for several years in an insurance company, going from home to home, taking people's blood pressure, and taking urine samples. 
he could do so much more. He is a surgeon. He doesn't give up. Sure, the insurance company wants him to be taking blood pressure and taking urine samples door to door. He continues to do that for the sake of himself, his wife, his daughters, his family, because he wants a better life for them. He works so hard. And then he establishes his own practice. And the population, the African-American population, likes him, warms up to him. Here is a gentleman who understands the culture of the South. He understands their culture, their stories, their ways of interacting. They like him very much. He ends up being the doctor for the famous, like Ray Charles. He ends up trying so much and doing his best, but he had to work very, very hard, like Ida May did. Let's take a look at what about the others? Take a look over here. The segment in blue is where African Americans were permitted to live in Los Angeles. The section in brown and, everybody, uh, and everything else, and yellow and beige, is where the white community lived. What do you make of this map? What do you make of it? Okay. African Americans were forced not to live in 95% of Los Angeles. They were forced to live in a very minor, small area. This continued, it did not stay. Let's go into the 1960s, the time of the Watts riot. They are trapped. Granted, it grows. We said earlier that there were 350,000 African Americans trapped in a very small area. Everything else, you've got the Caucasian community is living in all of this area. All of these people are forced to live inside of here. What do you think their existence was like in such a small area? Many, many people forced to live in a smaller area in comparison. What was their day-to-day -day existence like? Yes, Chanel. Poverty. Chanel, you, you are right. The job opportunities were very scarce. So they're telling the African-American community, you can only live in a very small area. You can't spread out. Well, there's housing discrimination. There's also very limited job opportunities. Let's add on more to this. What do you think their lives were like in such a constricted space? It's crowded, yes, it's crowded. What happens when human beings are put into crowded areas? What is it? Nothing good, nothing good comes out of it. Nothing good comes out of it. They were dreaming of the warmth of other suns. They did not get it here. They did not get it here whatsoever. There was an attempt, though, for there to be fair housing. So the Rumford Fair Housing Act was pa passed in 1963. And this act 
asked for there to be equality and no discrimination in housing. The Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, which was anti-discriminatory, and it asked people not to discriminate whatsoever. Well, then California passed Proposition 14, which overturned the Rumford Fair Housing Act and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So what was passed for those two, Proposition 14 overturned it. So people kept on discriminating and not giving African Americans the chance to spread out and live elsewhere in Los Angeles. Besides there being unfairness in housing, what else do you think created a deep conflict in Los Angeles? Besides not being allowed to live wherever they wanted to live, what else must have troubled African Americans during that time? Conflict with whom? Yes. Okay, that, that would happen. Certain neighbors would burn crosses in front of their homes. There was also conflict with police. There were tense police relationships in the Watts area. So police chief William Parker took over the Watts area from 1950 till 1966. He people were uncomfortable with him. The Latino population of Watts, the African-American population of Watts was very uncomfortable with him. He hired police force that were uh, held anti-black racist views, anti-Latino racist views as well too. He hired police even from the South there was a time before 1950 when the police force would walk the streets of Watts, so they got to know people face to face. 1950 and beyond, William Parker did not allow that. He told the police to go inside of cars, and so there was a disconnect between the people and the police force. The police used discriminatory language when they were arresting African-Americans. There was an attempt by the African-American uh, residents. Whenever something would happen, they would try to put in a complaint. They would give it to the police department, and people would not look into that complaint. So there were a lot of issues and problems going on with the police. So, with this going on, this is the historical background. It leads us to that very terrifying day on August 11, 1965. It was an extremely hot day in a congested area. Where are people hanging out on a very, very hot day in an already overcrowded area? Where are they hanging out? Okay. I wish they were hanging out on the streets. All right? They were hanging out on the streets. And so what happened was 
something happened. This young man over here, Marquette Fry, was driving and he was driving rather erratically and he was stopped by a police and he and the police started joking. It started out with both of them joking and the police said, you're not driving right. Are you drunk? I got to test you. And he's like, sure, yeah, I am drunk. So they're laughing about it initially. So his brother right over here. So this is Mark Market. And this is his brother, Ronald. Ronald goes and he gets uh, their mom, Rena. Rena comes to the scene where her son is being arrested. At first, Rena starts chastising her son. Why are you drinking and driving? This is not right. So there is an argument, a family argument, between the two sons and, and the mom. But then before we know it, Rena is hit, Marquette is hit, they start, police start fighting with the family, the family starts fighting with the police. If you notice over here, they're dragging, they're dragging the young man. It's really hot outside and people are watching all of this. It's already crowded and they're looking at what's happening. They're hitting an African-American family. Rumor starts going around. They're hitting this woman. And another rumor is they're hitting a pregnant woman on, on top of that. And people start talking. And the rumor starts to get spread around. And more people come in. And then there are the people who witnessed all of this happening. Were they witnessing this for the very first time? Was this something that was happening out of nowhere? No. This was something that they felt they were very familiar with. So anger. They start becoming very angry. They start throwing rocks at the police. When um, the fire trucks start coming in, they start to block them. One side throws rocks, the other side starts shooting. Terrifying incidents start to happen. It goes out of control. The situation goes out of control. You had people burning businesses. These businesses had been giving African, the African-American community meat that was rotten, that was spoiled. They were overcharging it. The people who were burning did not burn churches, did not burn libraries. They targeted businesses that they felt had wronged them. People were looting as well, too. They were taking from shops. They were taking goods from shops and running off with them. So what does Chief William Parker do? The situation goes out of hand. The police are firing, the police are shooting, people are dying. A lot of African-Americans are dying. Three people from the white community ended up dying. He brings in the National Guard to bring in a sense of control to what was going on. So this area gets flooded with the National Guard as well as the police force. And as the days went on, 
what he did was this. He said there was going to be a curfew put in place after 8 o'clock. Anyone caught walking the streets of Watts after 8 o'clock would be arrested. 4,000 people ended up being arrested. 4,000 people. And some of them just for being out after curfew. Some of them claimed they did not know that there was a curfew going on. So they were just standing there. So they arrested them. So eventually, to go back over here, there were so many losses. 34 people dead, 4,000 arrested. So why did all of this occur? Well, there was this conspiracy going on. And the conspiracy said it was the fault of the communists. The communists were the ones who were spreading lies in the Watts neighborhood. They were telling people that they don't have job opportunities. And because they do not have job opportunities, they should rise up and rebel against the establishment. That was one conspiracy theory. Another conspiracy theory said, it's the fault of the black Muslims. How is it that a community can go on for six days rioting and confronting the police and the National Guard and for there not to be a leadership? It's not possible, they were saying. There must have been somebody who was directing all of these people to go out and riot. You just don't have that, people just rioting. So, communists or black Muslims. So one day there was a call, and the call said, oh, this black Muslim temple in Watts was hiding guns, and they were hiding arms. And people were so ready to believe that because they were thinking people cannot keep up a fight. All these people cannot keep up a fight for days and days without there being somebody leading them. So what they did was the police stormed the black Muslim temple and destroyed it. There were no guns. There was nothing. The leadership that they were looking for, it wasn't there. People were just insisted that there was a leadership. So what did they do? Just like what happens when there are many riots, a commission is sent out to investigate what happened? Why did this riot occur? So the McCone Commission wrote up the following, looked into the social, the psychological, and economic conditions of Watts, and said, well, it was the poor housing conditions and the bad schools, no opportunities, no opportunities for development. Okay. The high jobless rate, this bred a sense of hopelessness in the people, in the community. The report is about 100 pages. And when it came out, professor of sociology, Professor Anthony Obershall said, you know, it went over the why, but it didn't go over the motivations. It did not go deep enough into what was going on. So as a sociologist who looks at civil unrest, 
he started looking into different theories to look at the deeper motivation for why the Watts riot occurred. Well, one theory that was proposed was the following, and the theory was called in sociology the criminal riffraff theory. And in the criminal riffraff theory, it proposes this idea that only a few disgruntled African-American youth who were criminal in nature, who did not have a job, did not go to school, who were prone uh, to criminal behavior, they were the ones who were after the Watts riot. So Professor Obershaw looked into this theory because that was one of the theories that was going on about the Watts riot. No, no, he looked into it. He had people interviewed in Watts. That's not true. The people who were rioting were not your small segment of teenagers who were out of control, who had a criminal background. He dismissed this theory. So what he did was the following. He interviewed people, and he broke them down into four categories. He said there were those who were the activists, roughly 34,000 people. No, those 34,000 did not have a criminal record or you know, teenagers who were out of control. They were between the ages of 15 and 44, predominantly men, men who were activists and those who were looting. So 34,000 of these. But then he also noticed the following. There was another category that he felt should really be taken into consideration. And that was the people who sympathized, the people who stood and encouraged. And remember, he's a sociologist, so he interviewed people. He sent others in Watts to interview people. 35,000 people activists, throwing rocks, looting, confronting the police. 70,000 people who encouraged all of this to go on. 70,000 people, people who were standing on the sidewalks and encouraging the others. They were sympathetic to what was going on. And then there was also another portion that did not participate at all, okay? They stayed in their homes, they went to work. And he says, we really have to take this into consideration because the media at that time was very inflammatory. We have to take a look. Not everybody was active participating, but you had a very strong portion of African Americans who sympathized with what was going on. Well. Why is that? Why is that? So the professor of sociology says the following. When the people saw what was happening to Marquette Fry, they took a look and they saw in him a symbol of all the wrong that was happening to them, to their families, and to their community. When they broke out in anger, they felt a sense of connection with one another. Fry came to be a symbol of all the grievances 
against them and what was happening to them. And here was a, set, here was a chance for them to all rise up and be together. He also said the following. There was the Pike Commission, uh, along with the McCone Commission, and the Pike Commission said, if you want there to be changes, you got to make changes in police and community relationships. You can't have a predominantly Caucasian-centered police force. You got to bring in more African-American police for there to be a change. You also have to have a fair, a fair review board, not made up of the police department. If they're going to take the complaints and they're not going to listen, you got to have a civilian police, uh, police review board so that they could look at the complaints and fairly and objectively assess what is going on. Professor um, Obershaw also took a strong look at William Parker's methods, and he criticized him for taking the police off the streets. The police would walk before 1950. I already mentioned this, but I'm going to mention it again. When the police walked on the streets before 1950, at least they got to know the families, the African Americans, once he put them inside of the cars, there was that disconnect between the community and the police force. William Parker is also known for creating a sense of military presence in Watts. So he turned the city, he turned that portion of Los Angeles into a military field. And this also upset the African-American community. So, the professor looked more into the motivations. He said, it's not about, the riot was not about something personal, something private, something that happened to a person, just like, you know, this person and that person, and they're going to take it out on, on the police force and the firemen. He said, no, once they noticed what was happening to the young man, who was being arrested, they decided this is a shared grievance. This is something that they all shared together. There was a sense, the riot brought in this sense of togetherness. So when they were throwing rocks, they were not aiming to hurt anybody. They weren't. They were aiming to obstruct. And they particularly targeted places of grievances. So they felt a sense of unity with one another when they were confronting the police. They never aimed to kill anybody. Okay. What went on later on? What went on with this family? It started, I wouldn't say it started with them, but what happened with them sparked the Watts riot. Rena, the mother, lived to be 92 years of age. Marquette, this young man over here, did he want to be the symbol? Did he want all of this? Did he want the riot to break out? No. Okay. 
it haunted him for the rest of his life. Uh, he attempted suicide. He never wanted to be part of any of this. So what happened in 1965 destroyed him, destroyed him emotionally. He had a son, the son died before him. He died very young at the age of 42. He never wanted to be the symbol. He never wanted any, any of this to happen. So he lived, he lived being picked on. He would get arrested every now and then. He had the reputation of being a troublemaker. It was all brought on because of what happened in Watts. He did not want any of this. So the Watts riot destroyed him. I want to take a look, just like I started the beginning of this presentation, by taking a look at the human elements. I want to take a look at other people who were affected. Chris Jordan was a toddler at the time of the riot, and he ended up moving out of Watts. He was interviewed in 2015, and he told the interviewer that his children are now teenagers, and what does he teach them in 2015? He teaches them not to make eye contact with the police force. And he says, I, I thought in 2015 things would change, that I would not need to give this lesson to my children, to my teenage sons. No, I have to still give this lesson so that they could be careful. I want you to take a look at what Professor uh, Henry Louis Gates has to say. He is a prominent um, African-American professor, and he said the following, that what happened in the Watts riot set the stage, continued, it continued racial tension between the police and African-American, actually stems in part from the battles on Los Angeles streets in 1965. Unfortunately, William Parker's methods of bringing in a heavy police force he gave people the idea to do more of that. He brought in the idea of tension to flood the streets where there are riots. I want to take a look at another one. Gwendolyn Faye Butler is, uh, was not, uh, 72 years old. Uh, by 2015, she was a young mom in 1965 during the riots. She was at home when her husband and his friends brought in looted refrigerators and they wanted to bring them in. She looks at her husband and their friends. She's like, you're not bringing that in. You're going to go and take that back. And so her husband and, and his friends take back the looted goods. They take it back. And years and years, well, actually, a few years later, when she got on the bus, this mother and her son, this Caucasian mom and her son, wanted to push her out of the way. And Gwendolyn Butler told, asked the mom, why are you pushing me? And the mom said, I'm pushing you because I'm white and I want to take your seat. And Gwendolyn told her, sorry, you're not going to take my seat. You have come to the wrong place. Gwendolyn feels it was the Watts riot that empowered her, that empowered her to make a stand for her not to be moved. So, 
the warmth of other suns, the great migration, the second great migration, the first one and the second one, the African-American community wanted to find this warmth someplace else. They knew they were not going to find it in the South. Maybe the North would give that opportunity. Maybe the West. I attempted to show examples of some people who worked very, very hard. And they created that warmth for themselves, you could say. And then there were others who were forced into Watts, into a very tight region, with no opportunities for development. And that warmth was never found. And so they erupted and found a sense of togetherness. But that sense of sadness lingered. And so it's not one story, it's multiple stories. And maybe that warmth from another sun will one day be found. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, any questions? My class has to stay. Everybody else? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, give me a second. Class, most of you in our African American lit, I want you to stay. I do want you to stay. The others, you're welcome to stay or you may you may leave. I understand. I know Ms. Yusuf's class. class still has a little bit of time as well. What is it? I said Ms. Yusuf's class, Yim's class still has a little bit of time okay. as well. Okay. All right. Please have a seat. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so my question basically was, can you make the connection between um, how they were forced to live in these communities and what we know as the ghettos today yeah. and how we see the structure of the cities today and the inner city today? Can you make that connection for us? Okay. So what a lot of people still say is that it's still going on, that... Shania, in article after article that I've read, it would always end with, and the McComb Commission made these suggestions and nothing happened. And the Pike Commission made these uh, suggestions and nothing happened as, as well too. So we continue to see it. We continue to even see these types of neighborhoods not far away, like maybe 20, 30 minutes, you know, right over here in our very own Chicago. So. It continues going on as, as well, too. My African-American Lit class this very Thursday is going to be reading In Darkness and Confusion by Anne Petrie. And this short story takes place in 1943. It's a result of the Harlem riots. What's great about writing and writing fiction is it helps you to take a look inside of the souls of people. And so what you notice is people are not just living in overcrowded positions, but it's taking a toll on them emotionally. Whenever you put people in a very tight position, that's what it's doing. It's taking a toll on them. They cannot, they feel there's no hope. When their surroundings are not clean and are not organized, which is what I would witness when I was going to Loyola, and taking the red, the red line is I would see the area needed more cleaning. The area needed somebody to take care of it. Later on, I read uh, that whenever you have a college, a university, a neighborhood where there's even broken glass, it sends out 
uh, psychologically this idea that you could do whatever you want. We don't care about you. So, you know, people who lived in 1965 were children or teenagers or young moms and dads. They're like, it's still going on. It, things have not really changed that much. More questions, please. My class, the other class. Jamari, Marquise, yes. Just one question. Um, do, you, do you think that it's like an uncanny parallel between the Watts riots and the riot that happened with Rodney King in 1992? That there is a connection between them? Yeah. Oh, yes. No, there, there is, um, you know, this is what, what happens when there is no sincere attempt to remedy the situation. Like for Rodney, for Rodney King, uh, the video, what, what happened and how he was mistreated in, in, 19, in 1992, like for Marquette, it, it was, they, they were, you know, th there was like a fight going on. And for Rodney King, it was tape recorded and, and the videotape was shown all over. And people in the, in the United States of America woke up in 1992 to, to be like, what's going on here? I agree with you. The word that you use is uncanny. 1965, 1992, history repeats itself all over again. And what they say um, in spirituality, in philosophy is for the individual, for a community, if something is not remedied, if there is no healing, it's going to become again and again and again until there is a sense of healing. We did not see in 1992 a sense, a sense of healing going on. Um, you know, I witnessed what, what had happened. A lot of my students were not born at that time, but it was a very uncanny repetition, as you're saying. Okay. Mike. Oh, oh, what happened to the brother? What, ha oh, what happened to Ronald? I don't know, Mike. I do, I do not know. I concentrated. I, uh, I like to find out about the human, the human side of the story. And they concentrated on the mom dying at the age of 92. And then I concentrated on Marquette, Marquette himself and just his attempt at suicide. Like, it's something that I focused a lot on. I, it's something that I could look into more, Mike. What happened to Ronald? Please, yes, Google it. Ronald Fry. Ronald Fry. Anybody else, please? Anybody? Questions? Brianna? Any questions? Jamari? Chanel? Any questions? Besides questions, what about reactions? Your reactions. Can you please you know, share your reactions? How many of you knew of the Watts riot? How many of you would like to share? Please share your reactions to what you heard. Hi, okay. my name is Lauren and um, my first reaction to, I heard about the Watts riot, but I didn't know in detail. Right. But I definitely feel like history re repeats itself, for sure. Like, to this day, in 2020, definitely. There's still a lot of police brutality and stuff like that going on in inner cities. And 
It's sad. It's really sad. Okay. Right. So you had knowledge of it, but not in detail, and you do see history repeating itself. Yes, Chanel? I would say, just to go off what you said already and what right. she said, it's very like obvious that history repeats itself. Um, just growing up and experiencing some of the, the ghettos and from what I learned in your class and just from what we learned today. Right. It's like, for me, like the guy, I can't recall his name, the police chief. William Parker. He looks very evil. And I feel like a lot of things back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, I feel like a lot of laws and different things were put into place to destroy the black community. And it's like everything that they tried to kind of undo as time, you know, progress, it seems like we're, we're degressing. We're not progressing. And history is going to continue to repeat itself until, and I said this in class, until we all die. It sounds really bad and it sounds like, girl, but it's the truth. Until it's all done yeah. and over, I feel like we're going to continue to experience these things. As black people, we can get up every morning. We can rise above the occasion. We can be better. We can raise our kids to be better. But if everything is set in place to go against us, it's like, okay, like we, we, can, we can do these things. We can try to win. We can, you know, but it seems like no matter what it is, it's, the odds are always against us. So it's like, yeah, let's be good. Let's do good. Let's, let's do it. But if, if you're telling me that all these laws are set into place, the laws need to be changed, first of all. That's the problem. The laws are screwed up. That needs to be changed. And then it's like, okay, if we're still talking about things that happened way back when, and it's still going on today, really, what do we do? That's the, really the question because when you gave us, you said that with the riots, I wanted to say something really bad, but I'm like, let me let Ms. Was Was do her thing. <laughs> when you said that they went and, you know, went into the black Muslim temple or whatever it was, they're like, it has to be someone who's leading this because they think that as blacks we're too stupid to actually get together, form a community, come together and rise above it. So it's somebody, it was, it was too big of a deal for these blacks to have come together and did this. For them, it's like they don't even care why we're rioting. That was the thing for me. They didn't, the, the, it wasn't why we're rioting, how do we make this better? It's they're rioting, it's a problem. And that's, as black people right then and there, that should have said something to us. Together, we will destroy them. We will destroy them if we come together. Not, we're gonna fall. Like, it's gonna just all fall apart if we don't come together, but again, as a black person, somebody who comes together, somebody who's willing to stand for the cause, we can do all these things and come together. But again, if everything is set in place to go against us, we're never truly going to win. We're going to come to the point where we got the Martin Luther Kings and the Malcolm X's and, you know, everybody's doing their thing. And, but still in all, it still never really made a big difference. So I just think that my opinion on it is that love conquers all outside of the whole race thing and in life you have love and you have hate it's those who choose to hate they're the problem and when we choose to love and help each other and stand in unity we win that way whether we're white black caucasian mexican whatever it is choose love over hate and that's that's like one of the biggest things we could do to start to move forward
Chanel. Okay. Uh, Chanel, just to comment on it, what, what you were saying, exactly. Love, togetherness, it's the matter of the mind, it's the matter of the heart. Dr. Martin Luther King, as you know, his days were coming to a close, he noticed this and he was becoming so sad. He was becoming so depressed. He was saying, I can go around and change all the laws that I can, but if inside of here it's not changing, then that is a big problem. And he fought so long and he fought so hard. And, and you mentioned that key word, you know, that, that love, that, you know, unity and to extend it towards everybody. And, and that is really significant. So that's a great point. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Any comments towards what Chanel said? Comments? Okay. All right, well, Afri yes. African American Lit, can you please, Tasneem, please stay? I know you have class, but we still have time. I do need to take attendance. I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, at this time, we will end our event. We do have two more events coming for Black History Month. We have tomorrow from 3, th 3 to 4.30, You Matter in U111, and then the Black History Month celebration on the 19th, next week on a Wednesday. So just join us in Building You from 11 to 2 p.m. And please give Dr. Wazawaz a round of applause for facilitating this discussion. Thank you.